So, welcome everyone. Can anyone hear me? Yeah. Uh, thank you to Steve for inviting me. And I know that I know some of you, and uh, many of you I don't know. So, what I want to talk about tonight, I should say right from the beginning, is very difficult. It's a very difficult subject. So, right, right to know, right off the bat, really jumping in at the deep end. And some of you may be very new to uh, Buddhist teaching and to meditation practice, so I hope, I hope that's okay. And I hope that uh, something uh, in what is said, or in the, we'll have some questions later, something will be helpful, will be useful, at least a pointer, or at least worthy of some reflection. So the Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Dis-ease and the end of dis-ease. And when, when, you, when you read the text of what the Buddha originally said, it becomes clear there's actually, in some respects, kind of two aspects of that. One is quite clear, the end of suffering. And another seems to be pointing to what the Buddha would call the unborn or the unconditioned, or the unfabricated, or the deathless. It seems to be pointing to something transcendent beyond, and I'll go into explain what, what, what's meant by this. It's actually quite difficult, it takes quite a lot of work, if you read the suttas, the collection of suttas, it takes quite a lot of work to dismiss that, and to sort of iron it out of the equation. So this is what I want to go into tonight, that side of things. What does this mean? What's he pointing to? What relevance does it have to us, this transcendent, unfabricated death? So as I said, this is, this is a very difficult subject. It's also, in, interestingly, maybe, it's also quite a charged subject. I find this quite interesting. Maybe more so nowadays than, uh, than you know, in other centuries. I don't know. Maybe it's always been charged in different Buddhist traditions. If we take the Buddha's journey, as a young man, 27, 28, 29 years old, how he was, and becoming filled with a kind of yearning to seek and a dissatisfaction, he said to himself, he took a good look around himself, and he said to himself, he he saw death. He saw disease, he saw illness, he saw sickness, he saw aging, he saw all that. He saw what he had, which was a lot, he was a very uh, privileged. And he said to himself, why should I, who am subject to aging, subject to illness, and subject to death, why should I then seek and seek refuge in that which is also subject to illness? subject to aging, subject to death. So right from the start, even before he left his palace, that was the question. That was what was grabbing him. Is there something beyond death? Is there something deathless? So it doesn't make sense for me to seek refuge in that which dies. What if I were to seek that which is deathless? And as he... As he uh, recounts later, he says, in seeking the unborn, unexcelled rest from the yoke, Nibbana, Nirvana, 
I, I, I set out seeking that. And he says, and then I reached the unborn, unexcelled, restroom, the open nirvana. He says, I reached the agingless, illnessless, deathless, sorrowless, unexcelled restroom of the yoke nirvana. So what, what's he pointing to? There are quite a number of passages in, in the text uh, where he's, he gives a, a little bit more, at least, what, what, what he's pointing to. So I'm going to run through a, a quite a number of quotes here. Monks, he's talking to a bunch of monks. Monks, that dimension should be known where the eye stops, where vision stops and the perception of form fades. That dimension should be known where the ear stops and the perception of sound fades and it goes on, where the nose stops and the perception of aroma fades, where the tongue stops and the perception of flavor fades, where the body stops and the perception of tactile sensation fades, where the intellect or the mind stops and the perception of ideas or the perception of phenomena fades, that dimension should be known. We can hear something. What is he talking about? What's he talking about? Other passages, some some of you you will know these. He's talking, points to something. Consciousness without feature, it's usually translated. Perhaps a better translation is consciousness that is non-manifestative, which is a funny English word, that does not make anything manifest. Usually consciousness makes (coughs) something manifest. There's Karen. Consciousness is making Karen manifest. Here's a piece of paper. It's making that manifest. It's making this moment manifest. A non-manifestative consciousness. So it's really at the edge of what language can describe. Consciousness without feature, non-manifestative, <coughs> without end, luminous all around. And it says here, water, earth, fire and air have no footing. Here long and short, coarse and fine, fair and foul, name and form are all brought to an end. So all notions of comparison or measurement or the way we know things. With the stopping of the aggregate of consciousness, each is here brought to an end. I'm going to come back to this in in a few minutes, but as I'm reading these quotes, I just ask you to be aware of your reaction. ask you to be aware of where it's landing. It's fine, whatever it is, just to notice what what happens inside as you hear these words. Another one started quite similar. Consciousness without feature, again, non-manifestative consciousness, without end, luminous all around, does not partake of the solidity of earth, the liquidity of water, the radiance of fire, does not partake of radiance, the windiness of wind, the divinity of devas, devas are godlike beings, angelical godlike beings, and then he goes through the whole list of various levels of God, and says, does not partake of that level of God, of that level, to the highest level of God, does not partake of that. Does not partake of the allness of the all, of the totality of being, of of what we receive through the five senses, or in, in Buddhism we talk about six senses, the mind being the sixth sense, does not partake of the six senses. That's where this word transcendent comes in. It's beyond the six senses. Another passage from a different place. There, he's talking about this, there I declare is no coming, no going, no stopping, 
no passing away, no arising. It is, it is without foundation. Here, here's really interesting. It continues not. It doesn't continue. It's not something that continues in time, a power point. It has no object. Usually, again, consciousness has an object. This is, this is really, as I said, at the edge of what we can understand with, with the mind. This, indeed, is the end of suffering. Another one. Wherein are cut off name and form, sense reaction and perceptions of form, leaving no residue at all. Therein is cut off the tangle with all. It's a bit archaic English. And he reached, he reached that. He reached the end of his seeking. He found that. And then after his enlightenment, he set off to start teaching. And he met uh, a man on the road who asked him who he was and where he was going. And he said, to set rolling the wheel of the Dharma, I go to the city of Kasi. And then, beautiful, in a world become blind, I beat the drum of the deathless. In a world become blind, I beat the drum of the deathless. Powerful statement. All those quotes are from the Pali Canon, the original sort of uh, text that the Buddha spoke about. But... In, in case one wonders, well, that's maybe just a Theravada thing or an old school thing. Huang Po, beautiful, uh, profound, great Zen master. I'm not quite sure when he lived. People are afraid to forget their minds. And by mind, it doesn't just mean the thinking. People are afraid to forget their minds and this whole, the sixth sense Fearing to fall through the void with nothing to stay there for. They do not know that the void is not really void, but the realm of the real Dharma. This real Dharma, this real nature, is without beginning, so very similar, without beginning, subject neither to birth nor destruction, neither existing nor not existing, neither impure nor pure, neither clamorous, not making any sound, nor silent, neither old nor young, occupying no space, having neither inside nor outside, size nor form, color nor sound, cannot be looked for or sought, comprehended by intellect, explained in words, contacted materially or reached by meritorious achievement. So this word transcendence uh, is sometimes used used in the title of this talk, is referring to that. That's what I mean here. Something beyond the six senses. So we usually know things through sight, sound, taste, smell and touch, and through the mind, six senses. Something beyond what we can know with the six senses. Now again, I'm going to ask, right now, what's the reaction to that? Just to notice inside, what's the reaction to that? How does that grab you, if it grabs you at all? And my guess is that in this room, I have no idea how many people, in this room there will probably be quite a number of reactions. One could be actually complete disinterest. I've come to the wrong talk. <laughs> Some, we hear that and we think, it's nothing to do with me. It doesn't even interest me. It sounds boring. Well, there's nothing there. It just, sounds, it just doesn't make a connection with the heart. Not at all. And that's, uh, I would say, quite a common reaction to hearing that. 
could be, and again, this is quite common, could be the opposite, that we're actually repulsed by it, horrified by it. It seems so life-denying, so against everything that we find beauty and everything that we find fulfillment in. So I'm, not, I'm just saying to, to notice. Some people, uh, uh, well, some people, it will be uh, bring up fear. Sounds like annihilation. Sound, there's a horror of the. It sounds like a blankness of it. And for some people, the heart rises up. It hears something. It hears something. The mind can't quite go there, but it senses the possibility of that, the beauty of that. Something rises up, something starts quivering in the heart at, at the sense of it, the sense of that beyond. So it could be any of those, all of those, one of those, or, or, or some others. But I think it's actually really important to examine what, what is the reaction when we hear that kind of language or that kind of teaching, that kind of pointer. And just to examine for ourselves, what's actually going on? And have I made up my mind about it beforehand. Have I made up my mind about it beforehand? As I said, it's quite a charged area. And essentially, I just ran through, probably a little laborious to listen to, I'm not sure, but ran through a whole bunch of quotes. Sometimes you hear squalors, squalors, scholars, <laughs> squalors making squalors, that uh, there's only one instance of it in the suttas. It's absolutely not true. It's really not true. It's the cities are peppered with, with these uh, references. If you hear me or another teacher say, there is no unborn, there is no deathless, the Buddha didn't mean that, he didn't say that, what's the reaction? Is it a relief to hear there is no unborn? Or if, we, if I said there is no unborn, or some other authority, whatever, would there be disappointment? I said, there is something other. There is something other. Totally other. Not of the world and not of time. What then? What's the reaction? So this is quite... It, there's a lot to this. You know, sometimes it's a matter of how do we respond as human beings and as practitioners, as people interested, spiritually interested, how do we respond when we don't understand something? This is a really important point. What happens to us when we hear something that we don't understand? Sometimes when we hear something we don't understand, it's very easy to just shut off or to go into self-judgment. And the inner critic comes, I'm, I'm stupid, I don't understand it. Or we hear it as a goal, and that sounds, I never get there. How, how can I kind of be, be with three breaths in the am I gonna? How am I going to do that? So this, this particularly this, this way that the inner critic and the, and the self-judgment comes up in relation to what we might hear of, in this case, the deep end of the path or the far end of the path or the goal, that's actually really important. And I think for all of us now living at this time it, involved in the Dharma, it's actually a huge, huge issue. It's a huge issue. How are we going to relate to this inner critic? Are we going to find some wisdom and some compassion so that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater when we hear about some, uh, you know, the goal of practice? 
happens. If that inner critic has too much clout, we're actually, uh, in a way, doing a disservice both to ourselves at a very deep level, but also to the Dharma. That has too much power. We have to find a way together, in fact, to find a way as, as a culture. A lot of this inner critic business is cultural, and we kind of block ourselves. We have to find a way to work with it. And I'm actually not going to go into that because one could spend all evening talking about that. I think it's really, really important. But here's a question. If, if I don't conceive of a transcendent deathless, however the Buddha would call it, what then is that replaced by in my life, in my practice, as something I'm aspiring to or moving towards? What's it been replaced by? To some people the whole notion of awakening or enlightenment is also not on the agenda. And then the question, what's that been replaced by if awakening and enlightenment isn't on the agenda? Just to open up these questions, not in any judgmental way at all. And, the, and another half of that question, what has the notion of a transcendent deathless been replaced by? And there are many possibilities. Quite a common person say, there is no goal, nothing to get, nowhere to get to. So that's quite quite common, quite popular. The journey is it. The journey is is the goal. Or this is it, whatever this is. This moment, this taste, this taste of the strawberry as I'm falling off the cliff is the same story there. This is it. Being in the present moment, has that replaced uh, as, as the sort of object and the point of the path? Or sometimes a lot, a lot more sort of what some might say down to earth, or a lot more humble. Just being okay with myself. I just want to be beyond this self-critic, self-judging. Is that what, what it's been replaced by? Or uh, knowing myself on a psychological level, knowing the fullness of myself, and healing my emotional life, opening the heart and healing my emotions. I want to go into some of this. There's actually, when we teach the Dharma, when we talk about the Dharma, the range of possibility of what's possible to transform and to open and heal and discover in the Dharma is absolutely enormous. It's, it's huge, the range. And, you know, as teachers, we teach all of that, and it's all available, it's all beautiful. But the question is, has it kind of nudged out this other aspect of transcendence of, of something different? So a person might think about their practice, reflect on their practice, and say, I, I really want to connect to the earth. I really want to connect to nature. That's what my practice is about. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I want to open the heart in wonder and the diversity, the uniqueness of, of, of things. I want to open to interconnectedness. In nature, in ourselves, interconnectedness in life and with life. As I said, all of these are beautiful, beautiful potential openings of consciousness. But is that the, the totality, certainly, of what the Buddha was pointing to? And are we missing something if we don't inquire into that too? And as, I, as I mentioned, the, the heart opening. You know, so uh, lovely, this aspect of the path, that, that our hearts can heal incredibly deeply heal deep wounds and the heart can just open in love and compassion. It might be 
that we have periods of our life where periods of our practice, excuse me, where that's really what we're um, what we're working on. If I look back over the years of my practice, there were real chunks of time where it was really about emotional healing and, and the healing of the heart. And that work really needed to be done. That needed to be the kind of primary focus for stretches of years, really years. And that's absolutely fine. There may be periods of different emphasis. But has that or does that become the totality of the way we're looking at practice? The totality of the point of the path? We could go on with this. this. And uh, what I really want to say is it's all good and it's all beautiful and it's all there for exploration, for opening to wholeness. I want to move into wholeness. One of the things, one of the aspects of the path that we really emphasize a lot as, again, teaching the Dharma, but also just culturally nowadays in the Dharma in the West, is mindfulness. So everyone's heard of mindfulness. No matter what tradition you come, you've heard of mindfulness. Sometimes, though, that can itself become a kind of goal. You can kind of take that a little bit too far. So those of you who've been to Guy House, I'm sure everyone who's been to Guy House, well, maybe not everyone, but there's a there's a sign near the place where we wash the dishes after lunch or after tea. And it's by Thich Nhat Hanh, beautiful, wonderful uh, Vietnamese Zen master. He says, while washing the dishes, one should only be washing the dishes. If, while washing the dishes, we think only of the cup of tea that awaits us, thus hurrying to get the dishes out of the way as if they were a nuisance, then we are not alive during the time we are washing the dishes. <coughs> the fact that we are here washing these bowls is a wondrous reality, a miracle of life. If we can't wash the dishes, the chances are that we won't be able to drink our tea either. While drinking the cup of tea, we will only be thinking of other things, barely aware of the cup in our hands. Thus we are sucked away into the future, and we are incapable of actually living one minute of life. So we can hear that, it's very beautiful. We can hear that, but very easily the, whoops. It's gone beyond its... What's that? We have Stephen, so that thing. Um When we hear that, uh, it's very easy to make that the point of the path, either consciously or unconsciously. And it becomes, the path becomes about things like living life fully. And there's another teacher, who's extreme, an Asian teacher, who's extremely influential uh, in, in that he taught a number of uh, now senior Western Dharma teachers. And one of, the, uh, student, of his students back then, who's now a teacher, asked him, why do you practice? What's the point of practice? On <coughs> two different occasions, this was asked, and he first time he said, "See those purple flowers over there by the side of the road? I practice to enjoy them more fully." Another time, I practice to live life more fully, practice to open to life more fully. 
Now this is important, it's huge. I really don't want to, we could, again, we could spend loads of talks just talking about that. Mo- most of us, we don't live life fully. We're actually closed, the awareness is closed, we're not that awake. So a huge part of the park, path is actually waking up to life, opening to the touch of life. All the beauty of that and all the beautiful teachings of mindfulness, but it's not the end. It's absolutely not the end. And as I said, it would be a disservice to the whole Dharma if it was, if we took it as that. We might use other language. I want to be with what is, which is just another way of, of saying mindfulness. I want to be in the now. Again, it's another way of uh, talking about mindfulness. I should also add that mindfulness, this capacity to be in the now and be with what is, is absolutely necessary. So sometimes people are interested in something transcendent, but but they haven't actually practiced basic mindfulness. And then it's just, it's a little unrealistic. So it's absolutely necessary, it's beautiful, but it's not the whole of the path. We talk a lot about mindfulness, and that's partly why, partly why that emphasis comes about in the way people approach practice and approach the goal. The other thing we really put a lot of emphasis on is impermanence, the changing nature of life. Partly because these are very important concepts, they're also relatively easy to understand, whereas something transcendent is not very easy to understand. So, everything's impermanent. Anyone who's just opened any book on Dharma you know, is, is, is aware of this. Most people would be aware of it anyway. And it seems that the purpose of, of the path is to be free with that flow and that fluidity of, of the, the changing nature of things. I did a discussion a while ago at a, at a, at a group and, and we sort of got onto the subject, what's the point of the path? What, what is the point of the spiritual path? And it was, it was interesting to see how much that was uh, kind of agreed upon collectively. The point is to kind of roll with the changing nature of life, to, be, to, to flow. Flow seemed to be a really important word for people. Flow, fluidity. And there were quite some strong feelings about that. And also, interestingly, that the, the goal of the path is something imminent. Imminent means the opposite of transcendent. In, imminent means tangible, visible, here and now, right there. Something we can grasp in a way. So this is, this is, this is difficult to get our heads around, as I said. For most people, I, I would guess, for most people, the sense of fulfillment in life the sense of fulfillment is in life, what we call life, and sometimes we give it a capital, <coughs> we give it a capital L. Our sense of fulfillment and feelings is in life. When you say life, we just mean the totality of, of all this mysterious, wonderful, beautiful experience. And our sense of fulfillment as, as beings, and even as spiritual beings, seems to be in life. Do you, do you understand what I mean when I say that? Does that that makes sense. Life. We, we talk about life, and sometimes we give it a capital L. And interesting, I was talking with somebody, you know, Martine Batchelor, she had read a book, this is years ago, 
He said, life with a capital L has become the new God. We don't talk about <coughs> God much anymore. But how, how we say, life doesn't, da, 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 life, life is like this, life, life, life. And we give it a capital L. In a way, life, what is life? Life is the totality of our experience. The totality of what we understand, the self and the world and our experience. And our sense of fulfillment and our sense of meaning is very hard, I think, for most of us to have a sense of fulfillment and meaning that's not in life, that's not part of life. Or somehow we might put it in death. But actually, what happens to the heart? It's hard for, again, for many people I would, I would guess that it would be hard, hard, difficult for the heart strings to be pulled and inspired if we say, it's not in life, it's not in life. When we talk about life and the coming and going and the mystery of it and the wonder and the vastness of it and the infinity of it and the beauty of it and the tragedy of it, all of that, and we talk about practice in relation to that, <coughs> then, then it's, it's much more easy for the heart to be inspired and, and the heartstrings to be pulled. So again, if we talk about something translated, it can seem horrifying, it can seem bleak, it can seem meaningless, it can seem frightening. One of my teachers said, life is not the point of life. Life is not the point of life. So we talk a lot in the Dharma about intimacy, intimacy with life and opening to life. And I said, said it before, I said it again. This is so important for us as human beings, so important. But it's, it, seems, it seems to be something else, this notion of transcending that. So we have intimacy and transcendence. Is there a contradiction there? It's not, it's not an easy question. Can't just give a glib, you know, facile answer to this. Is there a contradiction? What about that? Is it possible that we as practitioners, if we really care about this, is it possible that we could know both? that we could both really know in, in our hearts, in our beings, in our bodies, in our senses, what it means to, to really be intimate with life, to really know that, and know something that's transcendent. And then choose if there is a choice to be made. The, the choice is coming from knowing, and not from some, um, maybe hidden, maybe not so hidden, pre, pre-conclusion, predisposition. I was talking, just to say actually, between those two, the transcendence is actually much more difficult to realize. It's very difficult. What the Buddha's pointing to is very difficult. Intimacy is difficult. Certainly it's difficult to be intimate. It takes a lot of years of training to open the heart, open the senses, open the being to life. But transcendence is really difficult. And I was talking with a friend who's a um, lo- long-time practitioner, and we, we got onto this a little bit. I'm sure I nudged it before anyway. And he said, "Well, I don't experience that. I don't. I have no experience of this deathless or this transcendent or this unconditioned. I not only that, I can't conceive of it. And not only that, I don't want to make any big deal out of it. I don't want to make a big deal out of it." And he said, "And what difference does it make anyway? What difference could it make to my practice?" 
to think in those terms or not to think in those terms. It didn't seem to make any difference. He said, and what's more, might it not be that I then grasp at that as a goal? So all, all these are very you know, real uh, questions that people would have. But I would say, yes, it really does make a difference. It really, really does make a difference. If my direction in practice, my aspiration in practice is opening to the touch of life, if that's how I'm seeing it, if it's being with what is, if it's being in the now, whatever language we you know, then that's something very different. If it's to roll with the flow of change, if it's to be f- fluid with the fluid changing conditions, then yeah, it's something, it's a big difference. One, one other sort of understanding that people kind of land on or arrive at, uh, and an understanding of the deathless, uh, it's quite common uh, these days especially, is that the deathless is the true nature of awareness in that awareness is something vast. It's vast like space. I'll, I'll explain this a little bit. For a dedicated meditator, someone who's really giving themselves to practice, quite possible, quite not at all uh, out of the scope of possibility, that as, as the mind settles and the heart opens and the being opens and the consciousness opens, the sense of things begins to change, begins to transform and open up. And instead of the usual sense that human beings have of awareness being somehow in here and the object being out there, whatever it is, and this awareness knows the object, the sense begins to open up as, as we let go in practice, as the mindfulness deepens, as the letting go deepens. And the sense sort of, a little bit goes inside out, you could say. And it seems like, it can come to seem as a very real, tangible experience for people, that awareness is actually something huge and vast. And everything that's happening in our experience, everything, all the sights, all the sounds, all the taste, blah, 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 Everything, all of this, this room, and everything, and all the people in it, is actually happening in this vast awareness. There's a kind of real opening out and and reversal of the usual sense. Now this is a beautiful, beautiful experience for for those who have dedicated practice, who, who, who kind of move into this experience. Very beautiful, very imbued with a sense of peace and a sense of release, of freedom, of heart opening. Even more, it can seem that the things that seem to arise, the sounds of the words being spoken, the birds, the, the sights, all of that, seem to be actually the same texture as the awareness. So really, all there is, as one deepens in this experience, is awareness, whatever name we give that, cosmic consciousness, whatever. That's all there is, and everything is just the play, the lila of, of this. Very uh, real a profound, beautiful experience that people can can come to. And so what's quite common is to say, this is it, this is the deathless. That big awareness is the deathless. Everything else seems to be born out of that. The sound arises out of that awareness, disappears back into it. So it's a lovely, lovely sense. 
Every, everything's born and dies, and that awareness seems to stay the same, eternal, constant, totally at peace, totally um, unfazed and unperturbed by what is arising and passing in it. So it's really, one's touching into very mystical experiences of this deepening. However, that experience and that sense of things and the understanding that comes out of that is still reifying, it's making real space, the space in which it happens, and also time. There's still a notion of something lasting in time and a sense of the present moment. We talk about those quotes, it's difficult to understand, talk about those quotes. The Buddha's pointing to something beyond, and Huang Po as well, something beyond space it doesn't exist in space and it doesn't exist in time not even so to speak in the present moment it doesn't exist in the past or the future or the present when the Buddha talks about consciousness anyway he says consciousness when examined is empty it's void it's without substance he said consciousness is like a magician's trick. He's incredibly specific with his analogy. Basically, when a magician does something, it looks like something's there. Actually, there's nothing there. He doesn't say it's empty like space. He kind of says space is empty. Move my hand in it. It's empty like a magician's trick. It looks like something's there, but it's actually not there. You think, what on earth does that mean? Because of course consciousness isn't here. We are, if we're still awake, listening to the talk and doing that. It's empty of inherent existence. It doesn't exist as something that really exists. The other difficulty with that notion of, of a vast, beautiful awareness, peaceful awareness, out of which everything arises and passes, is another quote by the Buddha. And he said, Typically, as an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person, this is language, he says, conceives of things coming out of Nibbāna. Conceives of Nibbāna, Nibbāna in different ways. And one of the ways is that conceives of things coming out. So here we have this vast, peaceful awareness. Conceive of things arising and passing in that awareness. But he said, someone who's reached the end of the path and really understood does not conceive of things coming out of Nibbāna, does not conceive that way. Some of you will know in the Tibetan tradition also talk about the mind being inherently luminous, etc. I don't have time to go into all this tonight, but there, there's a way that language, for some reason, is, is used not so precisely there. So, he's reading recently, when this says luminous, it doesn't mean luminous, it means not inherently existent, it means it, it doesn't really exist in the way it seems to exist. There's a teacher, the 8th Sutta, was in the 18th century in, in Tibet, a great teacher, and this talking still about this notion of awareness being something inherent, 
permanent, independent, beautiful, peaceful, lasting, which contains everything, of which everything is the play, etc. And he was talking about it, and he said, you have to understand, we are expressing what is beyond knower and known, cognizer and cognizer, what is beyond that, what is beyond disclosure and disclosure, it's just another way of saying the same thing, with the words awareness and self-cognizance. He goes on to say, in, in the, historically, there's what's called three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma, with the original teachings, then the Mahayana, and then and they became Vajrayana teachings, and they historically uh, come after each other. And in the Vajrayana, again, talks about a permanence, something permanent, Buddha nature, that's permanent, that's pure, that's bliss, and that inherently exists. And again, he says, we're using those terms, but it doesn't really mean that. So this is extremely confusing. It doesn't really mean that. We're just saying that so that one doesn't grasp at there being nothing at all. Huang Po, going to go back to Huang Po. This pure mind, the people of the world do not awake to it. So I'm still talking about just to questioning that notion of cosmic consciousness, vast awareness, etc., as, as, as the deathless, luminous awareness as the deathless. This pure mind, the people of the world do not awake to it, regarding only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind. Blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of that truth. Realize that though real mind, is his words for Nibbana, is expressed in these perceptions, it neither forms part of them nor is separate from them. Again, it's questioning, very much questioning this notion of way. Sometimes the Buddha, the original Buddha, talks about awareness without an object. Awareness with no object. What does that mean? Awareness, consciousness, with no object. And he says, that's Nibbana. Consciousness without features. So really, non-manifestative consciousness. So usually consciousness makes something manifest. Usually consciousness is bound up, wrapped up with an object. I am aware of Stefan. I am aware of the cushion. Consciousness is aware of that. They're bound up together, subject and object bound up together. Consciousness is bound up with the present moment and the sense of a present moment. What does it mean, consciousness, awareness, without an object, unbound from an object or a subject or a present moment? The mind can't go there, can't go there. And yet that's what the Buddha is pointing to. So that's a beautiful, available level in practice, this very open awareness of it, and, and that as sort of containing everything, the space in which everything happens, etc. 
But what would it be for a practitioner not to stop there, to keep questioning, to keep the integrity alive, to keep the passion alive? What would it be not to stop? It's so, un- unfortunately, it's, it's actually quite a common place for people to stop. It's quite, because something so beautiful about it, so easeful, it has the taste of eternity. It's not quite there. What would it be to keep the questioning alive and then actually experience the release of awareness not bound to that, not bound to that perception, not bound to the present moment, not bound to time in that way of space? The Buddha says, said, where all phenomena cease, there all manner of speaking ceases. He's pointing to something you can't, language can't go there. Where all phenomena cease, there all manner of speaking ceases. And this problem with language is a big problem because at a certain point in, as meditation deepens and unfolds, you get to a certain kind of level of experience and it all begins, the language all begins kind of sounding the same. Spacious, vastness, awareness, emptiness, nothingness, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't really mean blah, blah. Um, but there's a real sense that it's very difficult to use language to kind of tease out the differences in understanding and the difference in levels. So many great teachers actually pointed to this. Mipam Rinpoche, a great Dzogchen master of the, I think, uh, 19th and early 20th centuries. Atisha, one of the great, great teachers who took uh, the Dharma to Tibet, uh, said at a certain point it's actually impossible to tell the difference in view between the, the profound ultimate view and what's much less. Because a lot of the language just sounds the same. A lot of the language just sounds the same. So you can go on and on with the language, but unless you really understand the depth of that view, it's not the same thing. Here's another strange thing about language. In giving this talk, in talking tonight, I could choose to, to say very little. Obviously, I haven't. <laughs> so, ten to nine, it's a little bit together. I could say very little and just drop a few m- mysterious, kind of uh, mis- mystical, maybe use that word in different ways, mystical sounding things, poetic kind of suggestions and, and allusions. And again, maybe that, maybe that opens the heart and there's a real beauty and validity to that. If I say a lot and I try and be really precise, what's the danger? The heart can close. Does it need to close? No, it doesn't need to close. It doesn't need to close because this is working. Absolutely doesn't. But that's that's the danger. Danger if I just say very little and just speak mysteriously and poetically is that there are countless misinterpretations that one can land on and take up as the truth. The Buddha talks a lot in negatives when he's talking about nirvana. Talks mostly in negatives, not this, not this, without that, not, not, not. Where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? If, if, if we want to know that, and again, as I said at the beginning, people are going to have all different reactions to this. Some will be interested, but not particularly interested in discovering. Some won't even be interested. The whole range. And that's, that's totally fine for us as, as human beings, the diversity as human beings. But if we are interested, where does it leave us? What then? 
what what gone through all these possibilities not that not this it's beyond 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 transcendent can't put into language what am I going to do where am I going to look how am I going to how am I going to discover and uncover this as a practitioner one time the Buddha was with a wandering ascetic who asked him how how am I going to know how, how am I going to know that and he said to him by knowing the destruction of fabrications, O Brahman, was a Brahman. By knowing the destruction of fabrications, O Brahman, be thou a knower of the unmade, Akhaitish. Be become be a, someone who knows the unmade, Akata, the unmade. So, by knowing the destruction of fabrications, what does this mean? What is what are fabrications and what is fabricated? Another word that you could use, the, the Pali word is sankharas. It means to, to put together, to compound, or to concoct. To, uh, in English, the words fabricate and concoct are actually good because they have the suggestion of something that's not quite real. They're actually really pointing at something. What is fabricated or concocted kind of put together in a way that's ma- making something that's not quite real? Well, the answer is everything. Absolutely everything that we know, that we think of as life, again, using that word, the totality of our experience, it's all fabricated. Body, feelings, emotions, perceptions, mind stuff, thoughts and intentions and uh, moods, consciousness, Awareness, all it's all fabricated. The six senses themselves and all the objects of the six senses, all fabricated. Awareness, consciousness, that which knows, whatever name we want to give it, fabricated, fabricated, put together in a in a somewhat unreal way, or at a certain level an unreal way. What else? Space, time, this moment the present, all of that is fabricated. The Buddha says, it's like a painter painting a picture. In the same way, we fabricate our body, our feelings, our perceptions, our consciousness, etc., etc., our thoughts. We, we fabricate our world. We paint, we create, we create in a manner of speaking, our world and our reality. And he says, he says, this is called a disciple of the noble ones. Strong language who tears down and doesn't build up, who abandons and doesn't cling, who discards and doesn't pull in, who scatters and doesn't pile up. And what does he or she tear down and not build up? Form, body, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, thoughts, volitions and thoughts and moods and mind states, Consciousness tears them all down, abandons them, scatters them, and uh, discards them. 
strong language. How many of us think of practice in those terms? How many of us think of practice? How many of you actually have even heard this before? It's not too long to ask that. It's quite unusual. Another question, not an easy question, if I'm interested in knowing the deference, am I practicing in a way that would open me to that knowing? The Buddha saying, I have to be a destroyer. I have to tear down what's fabricated. And if I'm not doing that, if I'm not interested in doing that, if I don't understand how to do that, how am I going to know the deference if I want to know that? So how, if, if one is interested in this, how would we go about that? How do we go about uh, realizing the cessation, the ending of all that is fabricated, including consciousness and awareness, what we usually, what we usually take from mean So there are... There are many ways that things get fabricated. And that means that there are many ways to go about this. Many avenues. So very briefly, not doing very well with time, I, I want to be a little bit finished. One avenue in practice is developing the skill to regard everything that comes up, the totality of one's experience, individually, as experience by experiences, as not me, not mine, not belonging to me, not, not, not who I am. One just develops the skill of regarding experience that way. As one does that, this is just one avenue, one possibility, as one does that, and develops that skill, basically the consciousness kind of opens up into a journey. First of all, a great deal of suffering, a great deal of opening and release and freedom comes into the being, the more one can do that. There's a big release, uh, you know, gradually, of, of the suffering. But more significantly, for our purposes right now, is that experience itself begins to fade. It begins to fade from consciousness. I'm talking about body sensations and sights and sounds and emotions, and the whole realm of experience actually begins to fade disappear, to dissolve. So, it turns out that the typical view that we have of experience as being me or mine, and that view is going on all the time without us realizing it or, or with us being conscious of it. That way of relating to things, the sort of default human way of relating to things, is actually a a builder of experience. It's a fabricator. And when we begin to kind of pull the rug out of that, pull the threads out of that rug, experience itself begins to fade and dissolve. And we're moving towards... <laughs> we're moving towards what's unfabricated. extremely short uh, version because I'm running out of time. When we first hear that, and I, I, when we first hear that, that doesn't seem that important or that significant. 
I'm quite aware of this because teaching in this way quite a lot. It doesn't seem like, well, all right, so what if experience fades? My experience is it, it takes quite some time for most people's minds and hearts to really see the significance of what's going on there, also to see the beauty of it. But when we do, and if we're willing to see for ourselves, kind of deeper and deeper on this journey, there's something totally and utterly radical about this, completely turning our understanding of reality on its head, completely on its head. So the usual things that we take to be real, all this, carpet, floor, rob, this, that, you, me, space, time, everything I talked about before, it turns out is actually fabricated, it's not quite real. It depends on me looking in a certain way, even this present moment, which seems completely undeniable. It turns out to depend on me looking with self-view, with clinging. So a practitioner can, with practice, just keep going with this way of practicing, and eventually will one's really thorough with it, one's let go of all self-identification as me or mine with any object, but also with awareness. You are not the awareness, you are not the awareness. Let's go of that. Let's go of any um, identification with wisdom or the person doing the practice or, or intention, etc. And eventually comes a kind of, well, complete fading of experience complete fading of experience and the mind that experiences an unbinding opening into what the Buddha would call the deathless and consciousness without, without future etc we talked before an opening into the unfabricated something completely other than the six senses and what we usually uh, what we usually deal with in life So that as an experience, obviously, is extremely significant. But it's not just the experience, it's the understanding. It's the understanding of what's happened there. That somehow, one's seeing that things are fabricated, put together in a way that's not quite real. And then, obviously, one returns to the world, and the world of interactions, and the world of comings and goings. But one knows it's not quite real, it's empty. Sometimes we hear something like that, and it's possible that the notion of that being something real and the rest of it being not real doesn't sit that well with us. It's a little bit discomforting. The Buddha said, whatever has been pondered over as truth by the world and the world of men and practitioners and women and the rest of it, Whatever has been pondered over as truth, that has been well discerned as untruth by the noble ones, those who have some degree of realization, as it really is with right wisdom. And whatever has been pondered over as untruth by the world, 
that has been discerned as true by the noble ones, as it really is with right wisdom. From another passage, that which is of a deluding nature is indeed false. And that is the truth, namely Nibbana, which is of a non-deluding nature. For this is the highest truth, namely the non-delusive Nibbana. So sometimes I think what's difficult for people, what, what the objection is, is are you talking about a kind of realm somewhere, like a space, like somewhere over there is Nibbana, and it, 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 it exists for all eternity over there, and somehow we're going to get there. Well, no, that's not what's being taught. It should, should be clear from everything that's been Sariputta, who was one of the chief disciples of the Buddha, one of the two chief disciples, and said to be foremost in wisdom, another monk asked him, with the remainderless stopping and fading of the six spheres of contact, so when you, when all this just dissolves and fades, is it the case that there is anything else? Is there an anything else? And Sariputta said, don't say that, my friend. And he said, okay. <laughs> With the remainder of the stopping and fading of the sixth sense series of contact, <coughs> is it the case that there is not anything else, that there is nothing? And Sariputta says, don't say that, my friend. And then he says, is there both not anything else and anything else? And he says, don't say that either. And he says, is there neither anything else nor not neither anything else? <laughs> he says, don't say that. It's totally beyond notions of existence and non-existence. Partly because it's beyond space and beyond time. If something doesn't exist in the past, it doesn't exist in the future, it doesn't exist in the present, when is it going to exist in the, in the way we usually talk about existence? It's not of time. What are the implications, finally, what are the implications of all this for practice? And to me, they're actually huge. They're in, it's an enormous uh, difference in shift. It's very, very radical. Now, I'll repeat what I said uh, you know, at the beginning of the talk. This does not deny, or put down, etc., all the wide uh, aspects of what's involved in practice, all the healing and the opening to life and mindfulness and being with impermanence and all of that beauty and could go on and on and on about that. All of that is beautiful, important, necessary, lovely. But this is something else. And just what happens when we throw that out and what happens when we don't throw that out? But if we if we get a, even just a glimpse of this, we come back to the world, obviously, but it shines through Sometimes it shines through all this reality. The sense of that something beyond the world, beyond time, beyond the usual notions, shines through, it's permeating through, and that changes the relationship with this world and the things of this world and the things of time. But also because we understand that empty. There's a lovely poem by Rumi, it's just to end. 
So Rumi is a Sufi poet, many of you will know. Obviously not from the Buddhist tradition. Praise to the emptiness that blanks out existence. Existence. This place made from our love for that emptiness. Yet somehow comes emptiness. This existence goes. Praise to that happening over and over. For years I pulled my own existence out of emptiness. Then one swoop, one swing of the arm, that work is over. Free of who I was. Free of presence. Free of dangerous fear. Free free of dangerous fear. Free of hope. Free of mountainous wanting. The here and now mountain is a tiny piece of a piece of straw blown off into emptiness. These words I'm saying so much begin to lose meaning. Existence, emptiness, mountain, straw. Words and what they try to say swept out the window down the slant of the roof. Minute of silence, though, and then it's time for questions.